Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll be talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what it means for the world. Let's start off by talking about the resistance because the Ukrainians have surprised and impressed the world, it seems. Um, very few people would have imagined they could have held out for this long against um, the Russian army. What have you made of, of that in particular? Well, as with almost anyone watching this, you can't help but be struck by the courage, the commitment, the determination to defend their nation and national sovereignty against this imperialistic in invasion. I think the leadership of Vladimir Zelensky, again, not an original point, has been really quite remarkable. And I know some people might deride this as, you know, posts on social media and, you know, posing in fatigues in a seemingly determined fashion. But it, it means an awful lot when you're trying to, you know, rally a nation of people to mm. defend themselves when they're completely outgunned, completely outmanned. And it's been absolutely striking. I mean, the, the fact that six years ago, you know, this guy, former comedian and actor, was promoting the Ukrainian dub of Paddington 2, in which he was the <laughs> starring voice actor, to taking on this role is really quite incredible. I think the the unfortunate thing is that we are moving now into that stage now, a week or more when people watch this into the invasion, that things are getting so much nastier. Mm. You know, having originally repelled the attempt to take Ukraine quite quickly on the part of the um, Russian military, things are getting really brutal. You know, we've seen the first Ukrainian city fall to the Russians already today when we're recording this. Um, again, the siege around Kiev and Kharkiv and various other cities just becoming much more brutal in terms mm. of the bombardment. So things don't look good, but nevertheless, it's quite clear that I think the, the Ukrainian resistance, as you put it, has definitely earned its place in history, regardless of what happens next. Yeah, Ella, I mean, I think it's, it's, it has inspired a lot of people and there's been, you know, certainly here in the UK, people have been getting behind them. What have you made of that? I think it's really important though, you know, some of these things can become, as Tom's mentioned, sort of schmaltzy posts on social media, but seeing things like Ukrainians carrying away Russian tanks with tractors or mm. um, pe people from all walks of life, women and men, there was this a picture of a ballet dancer le leaving behind his um, normal job and taking up arms and um, showing that he was there ready to risk his life as many, you know, the idea of an ordinary person who'd never before even come near a gun, let alone, you know, thought about coming near a gun to be able to take that um, responsibility, to be able mm. to defend something so important as sovereignty and their own sense of, you know, the independence of a nation is really quite remarkable. There's also another side to it, which I think has been that the Ukrainians should be really commended for, which is that there has been a sort of distasteful cheering from lots of onlookers from the West every time, um, you know, a Russian tank is hit or something like that. And this kind of, um, as if it was sort of a, a PlayStation game, mm. like kind of game Call of Duty or something. What the Ukrainians have been doing is taking in, when uh, they capture Ru Russians, taking them in, giving their sort of posts on social media showing that they're f feeding them and um, giving them tea and stuff and then letting them call their mothers because part of the problem with lots of the Russian troops is that they were um, conscripted and then weren't given the full picture of the kind of mission that they were um, being asked to t undergo. And also lots of them haven't had contact with their family. So there was a real sense from Ukrainians of e expanding and making a big deal out of the fact that this isn't a 
Russian citizens versus Ukrainian citizens war mm. and reflecting the fact that there are lots of bra- there is lots of bravery on the Russian side from people who are coming out and condemning Putin's actions and I think that's to their credit as well because it would be it's very difficult to actually take that step and um be the bigger man as it were to make that quite important point when you are under siege but I think in the long run that will be very important in combating not just Putin's war but also Putin's ideology and Tom, obviously, you know, this is not just a war between Russia and Ukraine. There's a huge kind of international uh, dimension to it. And, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, the way this conflict is being seen by the West, by people like us. There has also been, I guess, a, a troubling move to escalate the war, to escalate the West's involvement, particularly this week. We've had very prominent people call for a no-fly zone. So that aspect of it is troubling, isn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you've seen this in the UK, I suppose, most pointedly from Tobias Elwood, Tory backbencher, various other kind of Tory figures and people in the US as well. There was a Ukrainian journalist who confronted Boris Johnson Mm. at um, a press conference this week in Poland, I think, um, again, demanding this. I thought he was actually quite good in his own slightly stumbly way of explaining why this is a completely terrible decision. I mean, you understand why the Ukrainians are calling for this. Yeah. But for Britain's kind of armchair colonel types to just blithely call for a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which means shooting down Russian planes, which means the West and NATO going into direct conflict with a nuclear power and potentially sparking World War Three anyone advocating that and acting as if it's a sensible thing it's beyond me you know that mm. these people should not have prominence and influence in, in public life i, mm. I said on twitter this week you know they sh- probably should be banned from driving and using electrical appliances so demented is yeah. that particular policy but so far at least certainly from the uk from america from the people that matter they see that policy for the insane escalation that it is but you know it's remarkable that there's so many people still advocating for that from a position of some influence. There was a Financial Times journalist who retweeted that particular comment from the press um, interview with the the press conference with Boris Johnson and said, you know, what a powerful moment. Mm. And you just think, hang on a minute, is this a... Like, is this a game for you? This yeah. is a, if, if he had said yes to that, as Tom says, it would have been extremely serious. And as the point that Tim Black makes in one of his long reads for Spiked this week... You know, the the for people like Tobias Elwood and all these British politicians who keep invoking Hitler and talking about appeasement and make it, what they're doing is raising the level of discussion about at what action to take or what action not to take in Ukraine as a kind of very binary choice between good and evil, Hitler mm. and mm. and not Hitler. And if you don't go in and do something to help the Ukrainians, which is a very it's terrible to put it in those binary um, ways because obviously everyone around the world is watching what's happening to Ukrainians and thinks it's morally reprehensible and all the rest of it and wants it to stop. But the by, by positioning that as a kind of, uh, well, would you have intervened with Hitler or not? Yeah. You, don't, you, you don't give anyone any choice and you reduce it down to this very simplistic view when actually there is a huge amount going on at the moment. Hopefully there's some more level-headed people in there whispering in Boris Johnson's ear and he doesn't succumb to the kind of pressure that is being put on him from the warmongers. But, you know, that is a worry because he is someone that, (laughs) as, you know, with recent history tells, is likely to be bent towards the last person who did whisper in his ear. I mean, it is interesting, this all this talk about we need to act, Mm. which ignores all the actions that are being taken. There seems to be almost, you know, as soon as a, a new sanction is imposed, there doesn't seem to be any... Uh, discussion about that it gets quickly forgotten and then 
there is this kind of unfortunate escalatory logic. But it's worth, you know, looking back over the past week and thinking about some of the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. And they're incredibly significant. We've been talking a lot about banning Russia from SWIFT. Actually, that's not even been the biggest thing. That, that's that been on the table since 2014, since the annexation of uh, Crimea. But really, essentially, we've used the, you know, economic equivalent of a nuclear bomb to sanction the Russian economy, to sanction their central bank for, for years Um Russia had been building up its foreign currency reserves. Um, it built up around $600 billion worth. And now the vast majority of that, it's not going to be able to use. Ordinary Russians have paid through that through effective austerity. Uh, and now suddenly the central bank is careening out of control, having to raise interest rates to 20%. This is a very significant moment. And many Russians are likening it back to almost the kind of fall of communism in, in terms of the impact of um, that it's having on the markets mm. with their currency suddenly being worthless, with them not being able to, you know, make international transactions with various, you know, businesses around the world suddenly thinking, even if they're not part of the West, even if they're not part of the sanctions regime, being wary of doing business with Russia. And so these things are very significant and yet they kind of get pushed to the side because they're not pushing the nuclear bomb. Mm. No, I think that's exactly correct. And this idea that people have been hesitant across mm. the world is, is utterly ridiculous. I mean, sort of former geopolitical certainties have been flipped on their head in yeah. the space of a week. You know, Germany is rearming. Mm. Um, Switzerland has got involved, famously neutral Switzerland, yeah. has, has got involved, was threatening to get involved with the economic sanctions. Sweden, I think, is talking about sending arms, another kind of historically mm. neutral Ireland. nation. Ireland. I mean, it's... Incredible. And there's, if anything, there's a bit of a danger that no one's thinking more than the next day and the next retweet ahead, to be exactly. honest with you. Um, who knows where this is particularly going to go? I mean, I'm, I'm glad that obviously in relation to kind of military matters, there seems to be a line that is being held. But you can feel that rush to do something, even when the something they want to do might not be something they've fully thought through yet. Mm. It's very, very powerful at the minute. And uh, <laughs> the people advocating something further than what's already going on, you know, they need to think, is this going to help the Ukrainians? Are the Ukrainians going to be helped by World War Three or, or nuclear war? Probably not. Probably not. Not what they need right now. Mm. I think that's a really important point. There's been so much discussion about how this reflects on the West, you know, how, how we can't allow Putin to get away with this. We mm. say, so, hang on a minute, you're not the ones being invaded, you know, at the moment, whatever, but you're yeah. not the ones whose lives are in danger. This shouldn't be allowed to turn out into, even though there are obviously um, very obvious geopolitical tensions here. And actually, as Frank Frazee wrote in his column this week, there are some quite startling historic um, similarities. It, it does at times feel like you are back in similar um, Cold War, even pre-Cold War geopolitical tensions. But the this isn't a, it shouldn't be allowed to become a kind of, is the West, does the West have muscle anymore or not? Can it stand up to the hard man Putin? Um, but the other thing in terms of setting precedence, Tom is right, there's been, you know, the I know things move quickly in times of war, but precedents being set or indeed precedents being broken is quite remarkable. There's a really worrying thing happening at the moment um, in the UK and in lots of Western nations where a rise of kind of um, very visceral Russophobia is being allowed to um, sort of just spread, not in kind of concretely from politicians like Tom Tugendhat, who it's just every time he opens it's ma his mouth, it's awful. Um, fresh from, you know, his crocodile tears of the of end of Afghanistan and his kind of grandstanding there, now comes out and suggests that 
all Russian citizens, not just oligarchs, not just Roman Abramovich, not just whoever, but all Russian citizens could be and should be kicked out of the UK. So Roger Kale, another Gale, another um, Tory MP comes out and says, yeah, kick them all out. Does it even the nice ones kick them all out <laughs> and tells a radio host. And, and, you know, we've now got to the, from the very serious to the ridiculous, you've had Cats being kicked out of competitions. Crufts has just announced that no Russian dogs are going to be allowed in. And the consequences for that is, you know, even though it sounds like you want to have a show of um, national solidarity against Putin's regime, what it comes to, what you might end up having is a lasting and growing t- uh, sort of hostile environment for Russians in Western nations, which is, I mean, I've struggled to find a different word to that other than racism and xenophobia. I mean, uh, it is it is striking the way that Russian citizens and the Russian state have just been sort of melded as one. And, you know, quite rightly, we assume that not every Russian who lives in Russia agrees with with Putin, and we've seen the protests that attest to that. Yeah. But whenever they live in, whenever they live in the UK, suddenly they become this sort of Russian fifth column. It's it's very mm. very bizarre. This, and, it's this is black and white thinking, though, yeah. isn't it? Which seems to be taking over all over the place. I mean, not to pull things back a little bit, but even the kind of discussion about how we got to this point, mm. I think, mm. is getting really stultifying because there seems to be this argument, which is to say that if, for instance, as we have for a very long time talked about the um, potential consequences of the expansion of NATO. You're basically being presented as a traitor at the moment, which is so maddening um, because it's trying, again, you're getting this incredibly simplistic, almost childish Mm. debate, which is to suggest that if you raise those concerns, as many people did over the course of the 90s up until this day, um, people from all across the political spectrum, that this was going to have consequences, that you're essentially excusing, justifying Mm. what Vladimir Putin has done. It's just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, as um, Frank has pointed out in his piece this week, you know, it was George Kennan in the late 1990s, one of the kind of Cold War architects of the policy of Soviet containment Mm. from America, essentially came out of retirement in the late 90s, wrote this article for the New York Times saying that this would be a fateful error to expand NATO, that it would inflame the militaristic, nationalistic, anti-Western elements within Russian politics. And you look at the kind of leadership that we've ended up with in Russia at the moment, it seems incredibly prescient. This is not to suggest that his actions were justified, that it was just, you know, invading a nation is not a defensive move in response Mm. to security concerns. We can all agree that that is the case. But at the same time, for creating the kind of context of um, perpetuating Cold War antagonisms long after the Cold War ended, all of this stuff, it's so important that this stuff is discussed. But at the moment, amid the kind of war frenzy, I guess, there's just no room for any discussion like that whatsoever, which is another bit of this, I guess. Just to build up the list of people who were opposed to NATO expansion, you've got Margaret Thatcher, Henry Kissinger, all the, you know, all these people who are not exactly the Stop the War Coalition. Mm. And talking of which, we should talk a little bit about them because um, there has been that kind of McCarthyite atmosphere where everyone is sort of denounced as a, a Putin apologist if they if they raise kind of critical questions of NATO, want to understand, you know, how we got here. And that probably is most keenly expressed in the Labour Party at the moment, where where Keir Starmer is essentially vowing to kick out anyone who is critical of NATO. Quite explicitly saying if there will be, I think the quote was, no, more, there will be no false equivalence between Russia and NATO. You cannot talk about these in the same breath. You cannot compare them. You cannot talk about history. If you do so, then you'll be kicked out of the Labour Party. Um, that's, you know, Keir Starmer's trying to send a message, was just directly sending a message to those members of the Stop War, the War Coalition, people like Corbyn, um, Diane Abbott, and, you know, John McDonald. Uh, John McDonald, the 
you know, the Stonewall Coalition get things wrong. I mean, it's Diane like, Abbott thought the war was in Croatia. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like Joe Biden saying solidarity with the Iranians. It's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that they're the be all and end all in, in geopolitical and international politics analysis, mm. but Christ, they should be allowed to, to think and say that because yeah. there is, if it takes the Stop the War Coalition to be the only ones who will publicly say, hang on a minute, the West is not the kind of white knight in all of this, that they have played a role, there is a problem with NATO expansionism, then they should be allowed to say it. it you know, people talk about um, the fact that scenes of Putin and his police arresting grannies, you know, 90-year-olds who um, survived Stalingrad and things, that, that shows that they... Uh, his regime really can't be that strong if they feel so threatened by elderly protesters that they have to bone in the back of um, of police wagons. Well, it says something about the fragility of, you know, I know it's Keir Starmer and he's not exactly a political heavyweight as much as he likes to pretend he is, but it shows something about the fragility of the West's position that you can't even look at your own role, look at your own history and be honest about it. It's also very important to be able to have these discussions so that citizens can know what's going on. Because if you, you know, I think lots of politicians would like to simplify this crisis down into roid rage Putin, the madman, mm. um, is doing something terrible and we are the ones who have always done something right in the face of Russian aggression. And this goes way back to uh, the Second World War and the Cold War. And, you know, that, of course, is a very reductive talk about misinformation and publics not being able to have the full picture in relation to Russian propaganda. Well, that is might not quite be Russia Today style, but it is certainly reducing the conversation down so that we can't think about things in the round. And I think that is more dangerous um, than allowing Stop the War Coalition to have their sort of slightly fringe meetings. Yeah, I mean, we, it brings us onto the topic of, of censorship or brings mm. us back, back to it, at least. Um, you know, we've had RT pulled, the International Russian Network, but also this this broader kind of cultural boycott mm. of the West that isn't state-led. Yeah, I mean, the Russia Today stuff, just to sort of dwell on that for a second, I think mm. is um, not only um, liberal and censorious, um, but also completely misguided you know yeah. in relation to the consequences it could have i mean as uh, you wrote about this week fraser it's there's the european C commission have essentially banned it mm. um in the uk nadine dory is the culture slash censorship secretary it seems to be what <laughs> she mainly cares about these days it's writing to ofcom essentially demanding that rt be taken off the airways i think it's already off sky because of the fact that its feed was from luxembourg or yeah. something, so it's already been affected by the um by the eu measures um no one's doubting that the the RT spouts the Kremlin line. I yeah. mean, everyone knows this. But at the same time, it's quite clear that first of all, this sets a very very dangerous precedent, and also it's naturally going to have knock on effects mm. in relation to Russia itself. I mean, the BBC incidentally has seen a huge uptick and mm. rise in terms of people logging onto their Russian language websites. It's another example of, as you were talking about, Ella, the fact that you know Russians aren't brainwashed about all yeah. this, particularly with a conflict in Ukraine where they have a lot of natural family links and all the rest of it. They know there's another story there. They're looking for another kind of perspective. You're going to invite tit-for-tat responses by going down this road. So it's incredibly misguided. But as you're saying, it's just it's just one piece, really, this broader, yeah. censorious response to this. It seems like censorship is our answer to absolutely everything. Especially if we do think that the BBC and other Western channels are important in this, in, you know, the broader conflict. I mean, RT in the UK has about 3,000 daily viewers. Mm. It, it's extraordinary to see the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom getting in a flap over something, and, and Keir Starmer even more so, 
over something that, you know, a, a YouTuber would be embarrassed to have those kind of audience <laughs> figures or have more influence on, on public debate. Um, but let's stick with the cultural boycott. Um, been particularly, perhaps unsurprisingly, given Russia's contribution to classical music, that's been particularly affected. Ella, you wrote a bit about this in your Russophobia piece. Yes. So there have been, I mean, it's unsurprising that the arts are always the first to be the most censorious when it comes to um, boycotts, I mean, putting craft aside. Um, but there's... <laughs> They're, Loosely defined as art. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> Poetry motion, if you like. <laughs> there's been, um, for a long time, the world famous conductor um, Valery Gergiev, if I'm saying that right, um, has been under scrutiny for his alleged um, links to Putin or his support for Putin's regime. It's not that he's directly come out and been very open about the fact that he supports it, but he is certainly not a vocal opponent. Yeah. Um, let's put it that way. And he has refused to be a vocal opponent. Um, when asked, he was demanded by several orchestras, actually, that he was working with, that he put out a statement to say, I condemn Putin mm. and the war in Ukraine. Um, and for whatever reason, he refused and he has had all of his upcoming performances cancelled, of which there are many because he's one of the best. Um, there a similar thing happened with a soprano uh, who was working uh, with a different orchestra who, even though she posted on social media saying, um, I su support Ukrainians, this is a bad thing that Russia's doing. Because of her previous actions, she gave some money to a Russian supporting Ukrainian um, prime minister back in 2014. And in, in the Donetsk region, yeah. giving money to the theatre. Yeah, and so for, for that, she's been um, likewise sort of blacklisted. And the problem of doing things like this is that you, well, there's the abstract, more broader point about the difference between artists and politics and mm. people, you know, somebody can put on a um, wonderful performance and have political views that you disagree with. Indeed, actually, uh, Gerviev uh, conducted the performance at Palmyra mm. um, that the Russians played for. And there was, you know, despite the fact that that was an incredibly beautiful thing, there were people who raised, con you know, the issue of it potentially being politically controversial. But I think w given the current context, the idea that you would um, go after the Russian ballet, that you would go after artists, the you know, their Paralympians were just banned recently, mm. um, it's the same thing of going after individual Russian citizens. There's a real difference between very targeted action against uh, either organisations or individuals who have direct links to um, either the Kremlin or indeed have influence over Putin. That's one thing that we can have a row about. I'm not myself convinced about sanctions as it happens. But then to suggest that everyone who has a Russian last name, which is what it feels like it's becoming now, is going to become a pariah, that's a very dangerous thing. And most importantly, I think this is the point I made in my piece, because um, Putin's uh, anti-Western narrative is similarly with our Western leaders, is built off the idea that the West is corrupt and awful and hates Russians. Yeah. And then when you have a huge amount of hatred bubbling, for, that has always actually been there. Patrick Coburn and um, others have made this point that, you know, a Russia phobia has long standing, both in America and the UK for years, for, for centuries actually. But that if an escalation of that happens, then you give Putin more power to his elbow to say, look, they really do hate us. It's right that we're waging this war. And that can be really dangerous. And, and the idea, just the line that he represents Russians. Yes, yeah. that they're I mean, one and the same. Yeah, that they they yeah. are the same thing. And I think it was Sergei Lavrov or someone said exactly that line, Ella, where they say they're going after anyone with a Russian surname. So mm. yeah, you, you're definitely burnishing that particular narrative. It's interesting though, because on the flip side, you've also got all these Western uh, companies, entertainment firms, uh, Western artists individually pulling out of exhibitions and collaborations mm. in Russia, uh, Disney, 
have pulled their theatrical releases. I think they've got a new Pixar film coming out. Similarly, Sony and Warner Brothers have done the same. And on the one hand, a lot of this is kind of absurd. You know, the idea of depriving Russia of the latest Pixar film is going to move the dial in one way or yeah. the other is ridiculous. But there's also something incredibly cruel about, you know, denying a Russian eight-year-old an afternoon at the cinema because of the actions of their government. But such is the sort of rush and mm. the group think there's a real kind of herd mentality amongst these companies. They're all sort of chasing virtue, but in the process of which acting in quite genuinely ugly, illiberal ways. But there, it seems like there's only going to be more of this as the Crufts example testifies to, I guess. You know, even the discussion around Russian oligarchs has a tendency to sort of spill out onto, you know, critics of Putin. I mean, someone who keeps getting named on the list of sort of ins- that's insinuated these dirty Russians, mm. a guy called uh, Alexander Tomerko, who's Ukrainian, as it happens, and has even, it's quite funny, the Guardian did a sort of hit piece on him, even though he has written in the Guardian, criticising the Putin regime. There is a nasty unthinkingness to this. And also, the, you know, the the whole point of the of the idea of going after these people from those who support sanctions and, you know, T- Tom Tugendhat again saying, we need to get the cameras rolling and start sequestering people's um, houses. You know, let's start raiding yachts. Let's do all of mm. this kind of stuff. Um, the, the logic behind it is that you make things so terrible for Russians that they start to turn against their leader. And that buys into the narrative that all Russians are Putin fanatics. And as Tom says, haven't got to care about their cousins and aunties who live in Ukraine and can't see beyond the state propaganda of um, of Sputnik. And obviously that, but that's not the case. And actually what's more likely is that you will, you know, embolden the idea that the West really does hate Russia. And we've seen that for years in terms of the way in which British politicians have suggested that all Russia is good for is meddling in other elections, that Russia, kind of dirty Russian money, Russian money um, slips into sort of like dirty, corrupt Russians. Mm-hmm. And even uh, if you've got a Russian student who's on your course with you, they're probably to be not to be trusted. And they're, the idea that there's spies going all around. Um, that's gonna. Uh, that's the argument I made in my article. They're going to play into Putin's hands in that way. There's also <laughs> the way in which um, some of the sort of normal rules of due process or citizenship or uh, you know, anything that we sort of hold dear as a liberal society are being broken. So there is the has been the suggestion in Parliament today that you could strip um, Russians Russians living here of their British citizenship or strip them of their visas or whatever and, mm. and send them packing. That's a remarkable thing for a liberal democratic government to suggest that it could suddenly do. As much as we want, you know, you don't get, not going to be popular defending oligarchs, yeah. but it's also probably not the greatest idea to suggest that the government could suddenly nick your 150 million mansion. I mean, we have to think about the broader precedent that is being set here rather than just go along with these knee-jerk reactions that are usually about playing to the gallery of Twitter than actually proper geopolitical analysis. Well, there's also the fact that, you know, arguably some of the sanctions against Russia could hurt the West. And mm. it's much it's a much easier arg- argument for the government to make that, oh, we're really just going after the rich people mm. when, you know, the price of gas has gone up again, the price of wheat is going through the roof. Um, this is going to hit Lots of people hard, way beyond Russia, certainly way beyond uh, those handful of, of oligarchs. No, I, just to echo what you've said, this is something that's always worth bearing in mind, whether we're talking about warfare or whether we're talking about economic warfare, it's always the people less least able to withstand it, whether that's in Russia, Ukraine, 
or the rest of Europe who are always going to be the first hit by it. So that's something that's got to be, I think, at the forefront of our minds as we continue to see this never-ending escalation, as it feels like. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.